actually watch the stuff their friends recommend this is i'll look at yours if you look at mine welcome lookers to i'll look at yours if you look at mine i'll be your host ben mitchell and today we'll be Reviewing and discussing a movie called The Lighthouse, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, it is the one with Willem Dafoe, uh, because there's actually two The Lighthouses streaming, and some other ones called Lighthouse, apparently. I'll be joined today by my distinguished co-hosts, who are likely already talking behind my back, so let's cut over to their conversation, which is possibly already underway. Hi, gang. With us today, we have Jim Scott. Greetings, gentle listeners and friends. And Kat Ramirez. Hi, everyone. I'm a passionate storyteller, interested in reporting nothing but the truth. Just like I'm always real with my friends and family, I'll always keep it real with y'all. Nice. And we have Devin Schwartz. The game is on. And last but not least, my good friend, James Pepe. How's it going, guys? Hey, what do you think Willem Dafoe's farts are like? Are they good or bad? <laughs> oh my god! I was just happy they don't have smell-o-vision yet for this film. It was kind of. Is, do you think? Where do you think this exists in the Twilight canon? Is this a prequel <laughs> or a, a sequel? This is after Vampires Lose Their Glitter. Right. So uh, we are talking about. The Lighthouse, with uh, starring Willem Dafoe's gas uh, as part of the as a main part of the movie, um, and there was other things that I was just glad that there wasn't uh, smell vision for in this one. It just seemed like it would just be torture to be there in oh, reality. Man. So I'm glad I had that separation. Pots. Yeah, the chamber pot thing. The chamber pot thing. We'll get to it, but it set off a whole sequence of events. There, it, it literally started the shit storm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man, you're right. Shit. <laughs> so, um, right. So we are talking about the lighthouse, and Devin, you'll go over some stuff, some technical stuff about the movie. Um, so if you want to go ahead and take that away. Yeah. So the lighthouse is a 2019 uh, independent film. It was directed by Robert Eggers, written by uh, Robert and his brother Max Eggers. Uh, stars only three casted uh, uh, build cast members: Robert Pattinson, Willem Dafoe, and Valeria Karaman. I think is how you pronounce that. Um, two of two of those characters having lines. The third uh, not even speaking. Yes, um, and if I might. I read a little blurb that the people on the ship in the very beginning were actually crew members. So they Makes really sense. like kept it like low budget and uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the film was nominated for uh, 36 awards, including an Oscar, um, a significant awards. There were some smaller uh, IMDb lists, uh, 132 nominations total. But uh, of the the significant listing, there was about 36. They won um, six, I believe. Yes, uh, including 
Best Supporting Actor, Willem Dafoe, got Best Supporting Male from the Independent Spirit Awards, as well as Best Supporting Actor from the San Diego Film Critics Society. Uh, Best Cinematography, uh, one for Jaron Blaschk, who did the cinematography. And uh, Robert Pattinson got the British Irish Actor of the Year Award for his portrayal in the film. Wow, so many awards. I'm going to give it a few cash registers. I can't even keep up. Yeah, this was uh, <laughs> thought of as one of the best films of the year in 2019. I'll give it a few cash registers, though. Yeah, for sure. Ring it up. Uh, <laughs> what, was, uh, what was the Oscar it was nominated for? Question? Was it like sound design or something like that? That's interesting. If it was sound design, uh, while Devin's looking it up, I, I read that uh, in the actual screenplay when he was writing it on the front page, it said this has to be filmed in black and white and um, in one sixteen one, which is like a four three ratio, like an uh, old school TV ratio, and that the sound has to be mixed mono. So I don't know if you guys picked up on that, but the sound was mixed mono, not stereo. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of interesting sound things in this film. We'll, we'll definitely that talk bizarre? about that more. Yeah. Who does that? Yeah. Um, it looks like the Oscar was Best Achievement in Cinematography for Jaron Blash. Uh, he also got a BAFTA nominee for that and an uh, a Alliance of Women Film Journalists nominee, all for Jaron Blash. Um, he, yeah, he got a lot of praise for this. Uh, moving along from from uh, awards to just some some general trivia, interesting facts. Uh, one that I just found uh, uh, very compelling was that there's actually a significant amount of CGI in this film. Every seagull in this movie is uh, CG. The uh, principal seagull, the the main seagull, I'll say, was a puppet uh, that was dubbed over with CG, um, and all of the other seagulls were later added in CGI. They were just three actor seagulls were employed um their names were lady tramp and johnny and they played all of the seagull roles uh and yeah no no actual seagulls were harmed despite the visceral reality of that scene uh, no seagulls were were harmed in the actual film the seagulls get their comeuppance at the end though so <laughs> yeah true tramp is my particular favorite i was root for the underdog <laughs> the standout role i can't believe they had a Two seagulls named Lady and the Tramp, and they didn't <laughs> like over Robert Pattinson's entrails. They like sucked them together, you know, and they kissed. Do they have that in the credits, <laughs> Devin? Uh, the the names of the seagulls, I don't think so. Yeah. No, this okay. was a yeah, that would Love be that. impressive, um, but I don't think so. Seagulls I was need more... representation too. Absolutely. I was more worried about uh, Willem Dafoe eating dirt in that scene. Like the, this guy was like acting with the capital A. Oh my a. god! Wasn't he that was incredible? Dedicated. He was so dead. I, and I heard the other thing where he was cursing him. Uh, he didn't blink for two minutes, and he did it in one take. And it was one of the most compelling yeah. monologues I think I've ever seen ever in the history of film. I mean, that, I was just enraptured by his performance there. I mean, it's no Green Goblin, but you know. Finish it. Uh, <laughs> the film was also based on a true story. There were two men, both named Thomas, who, uh, while manning a lighthouse together, went insane and like attacked each other. I, I believe they were both killed. I'm trying to find the details, um, and I it's 
uh, lost on me. I don't know. I had it uh, bookmarked, but it disappeared. Um, but yeah, it is based on a true story. Uh, among other things, it's uh, also loosely based on Edgar Allan Poe uh, by the same name. Um, and uh, there's obviously tons of influences from other literary and and uh, uh, true events, um, mythology and uh, Greek mythology in particular being a huge inspiration um, for Eggers. I do have that book marked as well. I'll try to find it. Um, I would also say that he based a lot of the, I mean, the, the um, dialogue was so authentic sounding and I guess he based all of it on real like logs from lighthouses and writings from the time from that area. From that yeah. Area I also read it. Yeah, I read a detail that while writing it, he had uh, like sound, inspirational sounds playing, the sounds of like waves and seagulls and foghorns playing constantly on, on loop while he was writing it. Um, yeah, a lot of interesting sort of uh, uh, ritual that went into the, the making and the writing of this movie. Um, on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, the film got a 90% from reviewers, uh, from, from critics. Um, only a 72 from from the audience, I think probably uh, uh, because of the unsettling nature of the film. Some some audience members probably did not expect that going in and may have been taken aback. Um, but yeah, generally pretty positive. Uh, Metacritic also gives it a uh, 83 relatively high for that. So most likely people will like this movie. Um, I went into it feeling like when I first saw the opening and stuff, I felt like I was being assaulted by the by the soundtrack. <laughs> um, I lived next to uh, down in San Francisco uh, when I was living down there. I lived next to the Muni, the train track, and um, it was insanely annoying. But after a while, it's amazing what your brain can like get used to. Um, so it was similar with this. Like I would be, I would be in my room and have a guest over, and they're like, "Oh my god, what's happening?" I'm like, "What the hell are you talking about?" And like the house is like <laughs> shaking, and the train's going by. So like the sound of the lighthouse and 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 the sounds that were like you know kind of overwhelming. Eventually, I did get used to them in the movie. Yeah, and some yeah. people in San Francisco can actually hear the foghorn because they do have that as well. I was close <laughs> enough to that so, as well. Yeah, down near Ocean yeah. Beach. Um, and just lastly here, the film had a budget of uh, $4 million and grossed $18.3 at the box office. That's a pretty good margin, I would say, for an indie film, definitely. Absolutely. This was only his second film, period. The first one was The Witch. Which, has everyone seen The Witch? I have not. I haven't either. It's worth a watch. This one, I would say, is it. a better... It is. It's good. It's really good. But this one is so good that it's like kind of diminishes it almost in a way. But it's it's very unique. I'd say as unique as this one is. And it's also set in a a different uh, period that it came across as very genuine. I don't want to ruin it for those who haven't seen it. It may come up on the show. Maybe we'll do that some other time. It's interesting that you say it's the same director as a witch, because now I can kind of see some of the parallels. Um, this movie was deeply atmospheric. You mentioned the foghorns. Immediately, that cued me into this kind of haunting landscape. Um, and I don't know if I would ever get used to that incessant noise. Um, I think that would drive me insane, which is probably the point for its placement in the movie. Right. 
Uh, it was shall it was we crazy. Shall we guess who submitted this film? Um. Okay. Let me see. Did we cover all the fun stuff? Yeah. Let's Everything do a who done it. So let me do my little who done it lead in. This is fun. This is Who Done It, the portion of the show where we guess who submitted the uh, movie for us to discuss. We're all going to take a guess, and then the kind soul who submitted this will step forward afterwards, and we'll see who guessed correctly and who guessed incorrectly. So, um, who wants to kick it off? Do you want to kick it off, Jim? Do you know you want to take uh, a guess who done it? Uh, sure. So it, it was a cross between Devin and James Pepe. Just because I remember them talking about a movie called There Will Be Blood with Kenneth Branagh, and that also was a similar movie that the you know the two main characters were antagonistic to each other, and this movie shared that same flavor. But out of the duo, I think that James Pepe did it with the calligraphy pen in the library. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'll run with that. I'll also say Pepe, but I was thinking maybe Devin as well. So. I'll, I'll lock in Pepe, but uh, I want credit if it's Devin. <laughs> what about you, Kat? What do you think? Am I misleading um, yeah, you I'm well thinking, enough? I'm thinking it's Pepe as well. And I don't, obviously, I don't know Pepe too well, but I know that he's a philosophy major. Um, so I know that this is definitely up there. This movie goes in myths and philosophy for sure. Yes, Jungian, right? It's, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, well, since you're the, our expert, we'll get to that soon. Yeah. Yeah, I also agree. I think that if this was anybody other than Pepe, they pulled a, a real hat trick and totally uh, uh, dodged suspicion. So, yeah, I also agree, Pepe. Pepe, who do you think did it? <laughs> Man, I don't know what to say at this point. Jeez. Well, I'm going to say... <laughs> I'm going to say it was Ben, because I feel like this is a real... A real movie guy's movie. I think there's a lot of like craft yeah. going on that only like guys who are really into the movie stuff. Like Ben, you, like one of the first things that was out of your mouth was like the aspect ratio that this movie was in. It's like no right. one cares about that. <laughs> nope, no one but us film majors. Um, yeah, yeah so this I'm is definitely say, something yeah. I would have had to write an essay about in film school. And so would yeah, the so that's my guess. okay. So would the uh... The perpetrator, uh, step forward and admit who they are. All right, you guys figured it out. It was me. <laughs> Yay! We done did it. Nice. So, did everyone guess correctly this week? Awesome. Yeah. I don't. I don't get to do my prices. I'm going to do the prices right thing anyway. I'll pretend does like I guessed wrong. A, does this count as a wrong guess for me? Because that's bullshit if it does. <laughs> no, I'd say we probably don't do that. That's a good point. But yeah, since you were wrong, yeah. guess me, I'll do the prices, the prices right looser thing. Here we go. Okay, but for the rest of us, we'll hear uh, something else. That is correct. Thank you, Chris Farley from, I believe, Billy Madison. Okay, uh, so that was fun. Uh, now, what, how we're going to do this moving forward for the uh, lookers who are listening in, 
or watching is Devin's going to record our guesses every week and we'll keep kind of our fun running tally on that as well as our grade later. And so now we'll move forward with our open discussion and talk about likes and dislikes. Um, why don't we start with Jim since he's in the top left corner and that's how I read. Um, overall, did you like the movie? Were there likes and dislikes? Was it a, was it a home run for you? How overall, how did you feel about it? Um, I feel like it was a third base hit for me. Um, I'm like Devin in the respect that I like to like things. Um, I don't think I would have seen this movie on my own, but the fact that it was pointed out to us to watch, I thoroughly enjoyed it. The opening, that kind of black and white gravitas already set the scene before anything else showed up. Um, black and white just seems to be more serious. You know, it harkens back to, um, I don't know, the Maltese Falcon, 12 Angry Men. This was a serious movie. And um, it proved it to be so. I think Robert Pattinson's um, acting was superb. I only know him from Twilight and, uh, you know, wasn't much of a fan of those movies. I don't think vampires should sparkle. But uh, seeing him in this role years later, awesome role. Um, and then just trying to figure out the impending dread that was going on was uh, uh, it, it, it piqued my curiosity and I watched it all the way until the end, even with the ending credits. So um, I guess to encapsulate all of that, I would give it a third base hit. Okay. And we can kind of grade it after our discussion in case you kind of evolve what your opinion is as we go as well. Um, I'll just say that I really like this film. Um, and anyone who disagrees uh, will meet uh, draconian uh, biblical punishment because this is not a democracy. Uh, this is a propaganda outlet and we have been sponsored by uh, Eggers. Um, now, uh, <laughs> I will say that, uh, yeah, as... It, did, it does carry that, that weight in the beginning, but I think the tension for me was cut with the first uh, fart, <laughs> with the first cast. <laughs> I was just like, okay, okay. It kind of cut the tension yeah, a little movie, bit. It, this movie is sort of a secret comedy. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I can buy that. It, it's one of those, those movies that makes you so nervous and uncomfortable that when a joke does come, it's so much funnier just because it's, it's like a burst of relief that you're like oh my god something not uh you know suspenseful and terrifying for a minute yes i, I even some... go ahead cat yeah i i was just gonna say i even wrote in my notes like what is the purpose of this fart when that happened <laughs> just what is the significance of right <laughs> but uh yeah yeah so there's this comic theory that i think is is pretty accurate i found it to be pretty accurate is uh uh, it's about high status and low status, and I'll try to make this brief. Um, if if something is high status, like uh, someone who takes themselves very seriously, and then their status is their status shift to low is very sudden and quick, it will be funnier than if someone low status does something low status. For example, that's why you get the classic, you know, uh, guy in the top hat dressed up, and then the pie in the face or or whatever is funnier than like hitting, you know, someone who's uh, like a, a poor homeless guy on the street, you know, hitting him is actually cruel and probably not even funny. So like with the film taking itself so seriously, like inter intercutting with stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I think it did 
lend itself to uh, a, a good amount of humor and the surprise of it. I think, I think some of that is like punching up rather than punching down, right? So what yeah. would be humorous for us? Yep. Yeah, sure. That that's that's uh, one aspect of it for sure. And I also yeah. think it speaks to to the power dynamics of the relationship because of the fact that it is funny for him um, to do that versus Robert Pattinson. Yeah, good point. It would be less funny if he did it. Like when he was, uh, what did they call it in the movie? He was um, abusing himself. That wasn't exactly funny to me. It was more of like, uh, what the heck is going on? Whereas uh, anytime uh, Willem Dafoe did something like that, I found it funny. And so overall, Kat, what did you, how, how were you feeling about this? Uh, were you kind of more positive, more negative? Um, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I think it's objectively a good movie. Like I don't, and I, you know, based off of like what you said too, it, it would be very hard to argue that this is a bad movie in any sort of way. Um, so I definitely appreciate it in that sense. It's black and white. It was kind of felt a little slow at the beginning, even though it was very eerie. Um, so I kind of had that like, like, uh, damn, uh, kind of feeling, initially watching it but it definitely kept my interest the entire time and um it's not necessarily a movie i would rewatch anytime soon um unless i had to write an essay about it um but but it is it is a very it is a good movie um you definitely have to kind of be in the mood for this kind of movie because it is serious and it is kind of long too in that sense so yeah i i I did enjoy it i liked it Mm -hmm. cool yeah, yeah, I was the same way. I wonder if it was intentional on the filmmaker's part to almost uh, make people, because since uh, at least a couple of us have said already, like, like, oh, man, like we're in for a kind of a heavy, serious slog here. I wonder if that was like part of his intention for the intro to kind of set that up and then break it because he did it so well and it works so well and it seems to almost be a universal reaction so far. What about you, Devin? Do you agree? Was it like that yeah. you when you first started? Yeah, I agree. That I agree with a lot of what Jim said that I this is the kind of movie I probably wouldn't have gone and, and like watched myself because partially because I think a lot of the promotional material when it first came out was purposefully sort of mysterious. And like, obviously, they wanted to maintain the mystery of the film and not give it away in the trailer, which is something I actually want to talk about later as my one more thing. But we'll get to that. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it kind of looked like Oscar bait. It was like, oh, it's just another artsy black and white film, like The Artist or something. It's like, you know, it's one of those movies you have to watch, you know, heavy air quotes there. Um, and I was like, I, I kind of wrote it off and uh, I heard good things about it, but it wasn't really enough to, to motivate me. But I think that now watching it, it definitely I think it definitely does set up that kind of subversion. Like it kind of makes you bored on purpose briefly and then totally turns it around. Um, I think the entire film functions as a showcase for Pattinson and Defoe. It's like the absolute like peak, probably the best acting they'll ever do in their careers. I would be surprised if they ever top themselves. I don't think the Batman is going to quite reach these levels, but um, still, yeah, I think it definitely proved Pattinson as a, as a bona fide actor, as I think a lot of people kind of saw him as, as less than. Um, and uh, lastly, the, the first thing that it, it, made me think of when I started when I started getting into that weirder stuff was the theater of the macabre from the office uh, you know calling out Ben's shirt <laughs> the, the, the weird little video that Gabe puts together for the Halloween party um that's in the <laughs> right. yeah yeah the yeah, theater of the macabre sure. the weird oh black God. and white just like 
cliffs. Yeah. Yeah, that um, movement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well done. Yeah, no, I think when it comes to Pattinson, I think this was an essential palate cleanser for people. Uh, I think all of us were just like eye rolling about uh, about his turn as the vampire. Uh, in uh, I can't even remember the name of the movie. I hated it so much. My Twilight. brain just blocked it. Yes, Twilight. Uh, so this was like an essential thing for him and a good showcase piece for him as well. Yeah, I now say... people now I'm like looking forward to him in the Batman more than I was before seeing it. Yeah. I will say I've seen him in other movies uh, aside from Twilight. So I, I knew that he was definitely a good actor. So um, I, at least I didn't have that going into it. Yeah, I also think that I think the only complaint I almost leveled against him was that his accent was uh, was bizarre. It caught me off guard. It kind of seemed to, to change when I was. But actually in doing research, apparently it's that his his specific character's accent is based on a very particular dialect in uh, uh northern canada and so it's like you know a very small and particular dialect and actually apparently eggers in directing was like very like litigious about the way they pronounced words and had them re-record lines over and over if they didn't perform it acts like absolutely correct so apparently did an amazing job it's just a weird accent so it sounded weird yeah i do remember reading that um someone thought maybe his accent was a little all over the place but they kind of mentioned something not what not all what you said but that it was such a distinct and uh i don't know if rare is the right word accent that um it was hard to judge you know so you just have to uh trust that they that they knew what they were doing and because of all the detail every frame of this movie was you could tell it was well thought out and so i it would be strange for that detail to not be you know on on the mark yeah, I don't want to hog airtime, but one more thing, just because it's related to that. Um, the other big like inspiration I saw throughout the entire film, maybe not inspiration, but the thing it reminded me of was like a, a bizarro universe Wes Anderson film. It, it felt very like Wes Anderson in the like symmetrical shots and the like sort of quaintness of of it in in a sense when it wasn't being totally macabre and terrifying. It it had this sort of like very I don't know I don't know how to describe it. It's something with the aspect ratio also, and it just being uh, uh, taking place in such a mundane environment, which is a common thing with with Wes Anderson films, um, and making the mundane extraordinary, that kind of thing. I don't know. It, it felt that there were definitely some shots where I was like, this could easily be if it was the opposite of this. <laughs> if if the okay. color palette was completely shifted, it could be a Wes Anderson film. Remind me to get back to this because this is a a uh, a thing, a technical thing. I want to go over at some point, but uh, let's let's check in with Pepe since he's the guy who chose this for us. So, um, yeah, what obviously, well, I don't know, obviously I'll leave it to you to say what you liked and didn't like or why you chose it. Cause I'm curious to, to hear all of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like this movie and I've really liked a lot of the, um, a lot of the like boot, I guess they're calling them boutique horror movies that are coming out nowadays. Oh, I mean, I really, I really liked the witch. I really liked, um, uh shoot what was it? anyway i've liked a lot of them um and this one um i remember <laughs> i remember i was i was very excited to see it when it was out in theaters and for whatever reason i wasn't going to be able to see it and um i i ended up uh, visiting a friend of mine in berkeley 
And he and I were going to go see a lecture together that he was interested in, but I was not interested in. Although I think he was interested in it because there was a girl there that he was interested in. Um, but anyway, I was going to go to this lecture with him and wingman, <laughs> wingman him at this lecture. About Lecture wingman. <laughs> yeah, it was about poetry or something. Um, and I just happened to look up to see if the this movie was playing anywhere, and it was. And I was like, I'm sorry, man, I got to go see this movie instead of going to this lecture. So I went, I went and saw this movie by myself with like two other people or three other people in the theater. Uh, and wait a minute, wait a minute. I've heard from Top Gun that you never leave your wingman. So what happened? What do you call it when your wingman leaves the, uh, what, the main guy or whatever? I don't even know what the main guy is called. I don't. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, like center body yeah. man. Yeah, you know. got me going down a, a weird rabbit hole here. Okay, I digress. But anyway, needless to say, he was also sort of unhappy with me too that I was abandoning him to go see this movie. But uh, I was so happy that I got to see this movie in a movie theater, even though the one that I went to was kind of a small, like little art house theater in in Berkeley. Um, but man, was it good. I, I really like this movie. Um, and I like everything about it. So, I mean, I don't want to just give you a laundry list of the good well, things what, about it. What was it about it? What was your initial impression that made you want to see it so badly? Like, what, what attracted you to it? Do you remember? Well, I, I knew it was from the same director who did The Witch. And I that really liked for me The too. Witch. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That was the main uh, reason when, it, when I first heard about it. I wanted to see it as well. It's like, okay, that was a badass movie, and it was his first movie. I can't wait to see his sophomore attempt, and it did look good. However, the thing that kept a lot of the other co-hosts away was, for me, too, is it seems so heavy. Yeah, you know, I for this one at least, I didn't know much about it going in, except that it, except that it, it sort of gave me a sort of... Uh, sort of like Lovecraftian kind of horror feel, which is a thing that I'm interested in too. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. But also like um, around the time when this came out, we were also like just in like the midst of like the Marvel DC like fucking orgy of movies that they put out, you know, like just superhero movies. Like, and I mean, those movies, I don't want to be the guy that like complains about Marvel movies because those are like, legitimately good movies and they're fun to see and they're fun to go and watch you know and they make jobs for like a ton of people and people like them uh but right. they're not like interesting or different you know in in the way that this movie is and so whenever i get the sense of a movie that's going to be like different in a pretty substantial way from just your kind of run-of-the-mill blockbuster or even just sort of like I don't know, just movies that they put out to fill the screens in theaters. I am always really excited to see them because I know. So this was a cure for your superhero fatigue. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, I think this was also the time when like the new Star Wars movies were coming out. There was a lot of like tentpole movies out there. And mm, it was just yeah. nice to see something that wasn't uh, just like, well, apparently it was, but I, I, at least I didn't know, but just wasn't like, cgi fight scenes for like three hours you know just like fake people punching other fake people 
Well, I have something to say about that. I mean, there's CGI where you're like, okay, this is clearly CGI and it's supposed to be and it looks like, you know, someone's imagination has just exploded onto the screen. And then there's kind of like the CGI that I tend to prefer in filmmaking, which is just under the radar. Like you have to be told later there's CGI in this thing. It looks like someone just had a, a 16 millimeter black and white camera out there in like 1972 filming this sucker. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that like good movies also like hide a lot of crimes because if like those Marvel movies, like if those Marvel movies looked like the CGI and Lawnmower Man, like no one would go fucking see those movies. You know that would suck. <laughs> no one right. wants to see a movie that looks like that, especially yeah. nowadays. You know, um, but like who cares that the seagulls are CGI? Like you don't even notice that. You know, it's just when you're when you're involved in a movie that is interesting and captivating like it doesn't it doesn't matter like i don't know it like it, it hides a lot of crimes is what i'm saying like it, it covers up a lot of the I negative like that. stuff that's a great way to put it did you make that up or did or did you have you heard that somewhere no i really I, like that phrase i heard that from uh adam from mythbusters <laughs> nice. oh okay yeah smart yeah. fellow you're in good company there then yeah so and I mean, I think a lot of people will also say like, like they'll or they'll offer Jurassic Park as a as a an example of this because, like, if you go back and watch that movie now, you can see like some of those dinosaurs are just puppets that just kind of go like this, you know, and they but they especially look, the Velociraptor, yeah, yeah, but that movie is just like so fucking good that you don't care, you know, you're not paying you're not yeah. paying that close attention because you're so enraptured with what's going on. And you're willing to suspend your disbelief. And Spielberg is, especially during that time, he was really peaking. And uh, I don't think he had won an Academy Award yet, so they were still wringing that sponge out, you know, like they did with poor Leo forever. <laughs> just just oh, give us another geez, one, yeah. man. Yeah. Well, Spielberg uh, hadn't won an Oscar? Didn't he win for Not by 92. Was that, oh, I think that was the next year. I think it was oh, a was year it? after okay. that, yeah. Yeah, they were still wringing that sponge pretty good. I think he should have won for Empire of the Sun, but I, I don't know. Maybe we can talk about that some other day. Um, which I ha I didn't see until I was in uh, college, um, so I was late to the game on that one, but that was just such a, such a beautiful movie. Introducing uh, another Batman, uh, Christian Bale, as a, what, a 10- or 11-year-old kid uh, who did phenomenally in that. Um, Anyway, uh, real quick, I'll talk about these terms. Um, so um, I'm going to do this moving forward, so I'll try to define them as quickly as possible. Um, so in movies, uh, one way to break them down is to rate them um, on a scale between formalism and realism. And formalism being the side of the scale where you find such things as uh, German Expressionism, like Nosferatu, if you guys know that one, or uh, what was the what was the movie that someone was talking about before? It was almost like uh, his style. I think it was Devin. I never remember the director's name, but I love his work. Oh, Wes Anderson. Yes, Wes Anderson is definitely formalism. You know, mm -hmm. you're noticing that it's a movie with like extravagant sets and whatnot, like that. It's not going for realism, which would be on the side of like a documentary movie or some of the uh, film movements that are kind of like maybe lower production value, but uh, feel like they're very real. And then somewhere in there is abstract uh, realism. 
I think that's the term, where you, um, uh, aesthetic realism, that's the term. And it's referring to the aesthetics that can't possibly happen, but they make it feel more real. Like, uh, if someone gets shot, a spattering of blood hits the lens. Like, you know that in real life there's no lens, but that aesthetic lends itself to feeling very real, like you're there watching it. And so this movie, I'll just, on that scale, we're going to put it to, I would rate it uh, definitely securely in the formalism style and, and very much reminded me of the German expressionism style. Um, would you guys tend to agree with that? Yeah, I think it definitely has a, uh, like it, it kind of operates on a gradient as the film goes on, but I think it definitely, that, that entire gradient is definitely placed on the side of the formalism. Yeah, that's uh, for the most part. Um, and also being in black and white, that definitely lends itself to formalism because the world isn't in black and white. Now, is that is that a a way of being filmed or does that also have to do with the content of the movie? There's it, like different ways of categorizing. It's uh, It can refer to any element within the movie. And uh, so nothing's like purely one or the other typically, uh, you know, because in real life you don't have score. But then you can play with the diegetic and non-diegetic sound, which would be diegetic is the sounds that are supposed to be taking place in the world that the characters hear. But some filmmakers mess with that and mix the diegetic sound with the score of the film. Like they're listening, uh, maybe there's like a song playing that's supposed to be in the background, but they'll cut to a radio and the guy's actually listening to it in the world kind of thing. So that all can be played with. It's, it's kind of fun stuff like as a writer and director to imbue those things um on purpose into the movie so i think purposefully eggers probably is aware of this stuff and wrote it into the film uh to be that way and it also lends itself when you're more formalism uh to um go with the more um using more like symbolism and stuff like that like the lighthouse i uh itself was described as an erect penis for example so like you know that kind of stuff not to get crude, yeah. but I, that's literally his words, not mine. So, no, I mean, well, De was Devin going to do a, a synopsis? Because there's a lot of, like, sexuality in this movie. Uh, do you yeah. have a synopsis on hand? Yeah, go for it. Because then we'll, then we'll talk about some sequences and set pieces and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to go through the entire thing. I mean, it is it is a, a like a, a, a chunky, a meaty film. Um, but uh yeah basically you know it starts i don't have an official one i, I can i can quickly summarize it but uh they th these two men arrive on an island they're they're lighthouse keepers one is new to the job one has has a wiki he's been doing it for a long time he's the chief the chief and then there's the engineer basically um and throughout the film basically uh it, it starts about their sort of turmoil between each other and and rising tension as uh the lighthouse keeper is sort of arrogant and uh, very commanding and, and um, violent even towards the younger man. And uh, but then also these sort of strange things start, you know, creeping their way in, like the younger man starts having dreams and uh, seeing this this corpse that keeps reappearing in all of these visions, um, sometimes uh, not entirely dead corpse and also this mermaid that keeps appearing. And as time goes on, the older man uh, admits to the younger man that there was a, a previous engineer who had gone insane and uh, 
killed himself uh, who who worked here before and in doing so basically predicts the end of the film what's going to happen and uh the and then as as tensions rise things become less the, the reality kind of slips away and uh the the two men get drunk together um and yeah all all hell breaks loose they they this this light there's also this the whole thing with the light of the lighthouse and it's a lure um the the older man being kind of i don't know in love i guess uh there's a scene where he essentially makes love to the light um and uh, it progresses to the point where they get into a a fight a full-on fight and uh both wind up dead although it's unclear how what the order of operations was there i believe the younger man falls down the stairs at the end i think that's how he dies Definitely, it's the unreliable narrative thing. And yeah. Did anyone notice that it really took a turn when they both started drinking regularly? From that yeah. point on, it became more and more abstract and less reliable as to what exactly was happening. One of the major themes in the film is alcoholism, about uh, how uh, the younger man mentions, the, the world named Thomas, that's why I'm referring to him as the younger man, uh, mentions in the beginning of the film that he's just, he at least implies that he's in sobriety, that he's just started, uh, or just stopped drinking, I should say. Right. And uh, yeah, as he relapses for the first time and drinks alcohol, that's when yeah things start getting much darker. And as he gets more drunk, things get more uh, chaotic and unbelievable fantastic. I thought it was interesting how their relationship turned on a dime at so many points, uh, and surprisingly so. It felt like they were like, you know, maybe becoming like friends towards the end, uh, end of the what was supposed to be the four week assignment or whatever, and then like just a second later they'd be at each other's throats. Yeah, and, and then there's this constant theme going throughout the film of, uh, or not theme necessarily, but but practice of the older man gaslighting uh, the younger man, which again, you have to look at like the literal, like it's ga- he's literally gaslighting in a lighthouse. Like it's, uh, you know, so many like kind of plays on, on words there. But was uh, that was that because um, he was trying to cover up his own crime? Or do you think it was more gaslighting in terms of... Uh, that the other guy that okay so there was one theory that uh kind of like the ferris bueller theory that uh cameron was real and ferris wasn't that uh the younger man was assigned there and that the older thomas was not real and was just kind of like part part of his conscious conscience yeah i mean i think that's definitely possible it's one of those kind of like generic theories that like so many movies can be applied to it's almost like you know i shy away from from that it's the same like you know is the older man the devil and is is in hell and the older man's the devil and he's being punished and you know it's those are so easy to find in like any movie i just tend to like ignore uh any instinct but actually when my mom watched it me and my mom watched it together and she actually thought that she thought that maybe the older man didn't exist Okay, so that wasn't just i i in one of the reviews they mentioned that i was like oh yeah it could be one of those that fits into that maybe only because there wasn't a lot of other characters in it to like bounce reality off of in that sense. But yeah, that is almost like a cliche, like a uh, thing, you know, that you can apply to a lot of movies. Yeah. Um, so I um, kind of rejected that and watched it as if they were both real, but there to, to bring it onto the, the um, mythology thing. Um, yeah. The Prometheus story uh, was apparent towards the end, at least. 
with uh, with how young Thomas died. I'm not sure. Yeah, I so I'm not sure I understand how that fit in, other than I mean, the guy kind of deserved what he got, I guess. But uh, I'm, it wasn't clear to me like what he was getting from the light that was um, parallel to that myth. Yeah, I mean, just kind of broadly, the idea that the, the so, so for people who don't know, the, the, the myth of Prometheus is basically that, um, you know, way back in time in Greek mythology, uh, in the, the timeline of Greek mythology, man, man did not have fire, only the gods had fire. And this guy, Prometheus, this man, this mortal, decided to climb Olympus and steal the fire from the gods and bring it down to man. And he did so, he successfully, but was caught by Zeus and imprisoned, chained to a rock to be eaten by uh, carrion birds every day and then uh, regenerate overnight and be eaten the next day. So he's granted immortality, but, at the, you know, just to be tortured forever. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely, I mean, obviously the way he dies is a direct reference, but there's also the fact that, you know, there is this this light, this fire up on a, a tower that he climbs up towards and covets and is punished for for his, his coveting of it. Um, so I'm curious, yeah, I, what, like, how many of us picked up on that and at what point, like, was that something if you guys did pick up on? I think Kat, you mentioned something about mythology, so I'm wondering if that was something you picked up on and when when it occurred to you, because it didn't occur to me really until the end. Um, I mean, it, yeah, same actually. At the end, it was that's when it felt really like it was some sort of Greek mythology. Um, but it was really in my in the reading I've, I saw um, in the reviews of the movie that I kind of broke it down to. Um, one person had said, and I can't remember who wrote this, but um, had equated the light as like this form of knowledge, like when you seek knowledge and then once you have it, this kind of idea of like having too much knowledge is you become this like too powerful and it's kind of overwhelming. Um, and I'm not sure if that's if that's correlated to the Prometheus um, myth or if this is connected to the Greek mythology, but this idea of light and darkness and knowledge and absence of knowledge too. So I, and I could see that kind of throughout the whole that movie. That makes sense. And it's also kind of like almost a biblical Adam and Eve type of deal too, the forbidden fruit. In yeah. that way. My, my but, first instinct, sorry, just briefly, my first instinct for the, the themes of Greek mythology actually was much earlier when he was carrying the, um, when, when I was thinking about death and him, him being dead, when he was carrying the oil uh, up the stairs, the first thing that came to my mind was Sisyphus. Is I, I yes. saw it very Sisyphusian. He, he pulls this heavy thing all the way up the stairs and then has to bring it all the way back down. And then later he dies by falling down those same stairs. So uh, yeah, that that definitely that that pricked my ears up the, uh, the the first time. Cool. Yeah, I totally overlooked that. But now that you mention it, totally Sisyphean effort there. And then he even like when he got up there, he's all now take it back down. You know, yeah. use this one. What are you doing? So what about you, Jim? Did you pick up on any mythological uh, undertones there in the movie at all? Um, and if you did, did you what what point did you latch on to that? Um, so some of the mythological um, undertones that I picked up was less in like the Greek fables, um, the heroes that you had mentioned, uh, but was more on the ideal of mermaids. And in this essence, the mermaid wasn't a pleasant and I didn't even know if, it, if she was real, you know, it, it was kind of like, because I was thinking, could this same thing, thing happen to uh, two men in Cabin in the Woods, right? Um, away from the lighthouse in a different setting, but equally isolating. 
And so that played on is the images of the mermaid and the dreams that he's having, is this real or is this um, a man that's slowly going insane? Um, but being that it was in a lighthouse, I was thinking more of the mermaid being a siren, you know, and the siren's call, um, the captivation, that type of thing. Uh, but to go to an earlier point that Devin was making about like master and commander and this very dominating um, relationship, at least in the beginning um, that uh, uh, Willem Dafoe has towards Robert uh, Pattinson, you know, he was gaslighting for sure, saw instances. You didn't see what you really saw. You saw this. And uh, I command the light, not you, not ever. Um, you know, I was really disturbed by that, that type yeah, of relationship. Yeah, that got yeah. my skin too. Well said. Yeah, exactly. But I think that, you know, getting away from this like allegory was the older man really there. I think he was. And going off of that assumption, I don't think he was browbeating Pattinson's character to hide crimes. I think he had a clear insight in the type of character that Pattinson was based on some of their exchanges. And some of the things he was doing was to try to uh, force Pattinson to go in a different direction against his nature because he co-vetted the light. He asked about it from the first time he got there. Um you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So he was trying to caution him against his, his nature that he saw the, you know, the direction that he was heading, just like the former assistant had gone down that, that same route. Um, another part that I found very interesting was Pattinson. When he first came, he was full of composure. He refused to drink. He drank the nasty water, you know, out of the cistern. Um, that type of thing. But when the relationship kind of developed and he almost thought they were friends, that was at the point that Pattinson's character was mimicking Defoe. He started smoking out of the pipe. He was smoking cigarettes. He was getting drunk as all hell. And I thought that was a really interesting exchange because they were becoming, you know, like each other. And you kind of seen, well, Pattinson's going to go down this road and it's going to be tragic. So to that, to kind of summarize, are you, and I think this is interesting, are you saying that maybe uh, older Thomas um, knew that there was some kind of sin there to be uncovered by this other, this younger man who was guarding uh, himself? Yes. Yes, because he said as much. When they were being frank and forthright, and it's interesting because that's different than our society where we say pleasantries. We don't say what we really think, but they were being more than bluntly honest. It was a scathing honesty and it was a look into the soul of the other man. I know who you are, not right. what you are, who yeah. you are. Right. Cause he was like criticizing his work, even though he was doing like really solid work, but really it was about like revealing himself, you know? Um, I think that's interesting because another take I had read was that he was just threatened by him. And I, I don't know if that was the case. I think you may have hit the nail on the head 
closer than uh, what the uh, reviewer got out of it is just being threatened. I think he was after something. He sensed maybe a similar sin to his own. He was able to call out what he saw in himself and someone else, and he wanted to break down his guard for whatever reason. I don't know if it was preparing him to embrace the light himself and it didn't work, or if it was more of like a warning to not go down the same path or what. So it seems like the light may have been the madness that he was seeking in some form uh, uh, other than enlightenment, or maybe the enlightenment was part of the madness or something. What did you think, uh, Pepe? Anything anything about all this stuff we're throwing yeah, out there? Yeah, well, as far as... Um, well, I think the important, I think an important question to ask is, is Willem Dafoe gaslighting Robert Pattinson? Because we only see, because we get this whole story from Robert Pattinson's character's point of view. He's the only viewpoint we have, so we're hearing the whole movie through his lens. And so... Yeah, I think it's an interesting question to ask is like, well, maybe Robert Pattinson really is doing a shitty job working here and Willem Dafoe is like seriously trying to like get this guy to do his work. Um, but but like you said, we only ever see um, Robert Pattinson's character, the young man, we only ever see him working, basically. And he seems to be a hardworking guy. And I think the there's a like the point of that is for him... I mean, there's even a point in the movie where he basically breaks the fourth wall and just, like, talks to the camera when he says, like, how else is a man supposed to get respectable work or whatever he says? It's, yeah, clear, yeah, that, yeah, it's right. clear that he's telling us this story, and we okay. only ever get his perspective. That's fascinating because maybe he just feels like it's gaslighting, and he's telling us, hey, in his perception, he was a hard worker, but it turns out, uh, the reality from older Tom's perspective is like, God, this kid is not like up to snuff here, even though he thinks he is. Yeah, I mean, we have we have no um, vantage point from which to judge whether Robert Pattinson's character is actually doing good work or not, right? Um, because we only right, ever right. get his point of view. Um, the only, as far as like the the mythological stuff goes. This is, oh, I guess just to, to finish that, I think that the relationship between the two men and the fact that they have the same name and things like that is interesting because I think I think that, like, they may be sort of slowly becoming the same over the course of the movie, like how Jim was suggesting. And I think that that might account for the sort of, like, homosexual tension between the two of them. Um, I know that, that in the past, or like a long time ago, Freud sort of posited, and this isn't thought to be the case anymore, that being gay was a sort of narcissism. And that's why, so you love yourself so much that you are homosexual, right? And I think that that is in some way present in this movie, um, because yeah, I think I think the two men like sort of slowly become so much like one another that they sort of almost start having this like weird sexual relationship or desire for one another. Um, so maybe Eggers was exploring that thematically 
like the the Freudian theory about it. Yeah, but there, I mean, there's like you said earlier, there's plenty of like Jungian stuff in this in the movie too, because Jung took like all of those. I mean, Freud took the myths seriously too, but like Jung took them more seriously and also took religion seriously, Christianity, namely, which which Freud did not. Um, but actually, the sort of mythological aspects of the movie are sort of like the one criticism that I would level against it. It, it, it. In that aspect, it reminded me a lot of Mother, which tried to do so many things and ended up mixing its metaphors like so badly that it sort of, you didn't really get like what the point of it was. And I think that sort of happens here too, because you can see that like in the Prometheus myth, Prometheus steals fire back from the gods because humans had fire. Zeus took it from them so that they would be dependent on the gods. Prometheus uh, stole it back from the from the gods so that man would no longer be dependent on the gods for their fire. Um, and in that sense, like part of the tragedy of Prometheus is that he's seen as like this salvific character. And he's and he later gets identified with Christ. Um, and Robert Pattinson is not that, <laughs> you know, he is he's kind of a shitty guy. Um, he yeah. he's not trying to, like, steal that light for the betterment of humanity. He just wants it. Um, and so and I think um, I think Willem Dafoe's character is also meant to be Proteus, which is another Greek god of the sea um who's oftentimes depicted as like a man to the torso and then like and with like tentacles coming out of the bottom of him he's called the old man in the sea there's a lot of other things that identify him with proteus um and yeah so i don't i don't know <clears throat> i don't know if that aspect of it really sort of like hit the nail on the head or sort of like came to a real fine point and so if I had to level some criticism against this movie, it would probably be that. Yeah, there was, it was a lot, a lot there. And uh, when I force my wife to watch this with me, <laughs> I'll be uh, definitely kind of having digested a lot of what we've discussed and what I read uh, and see how it strikes me on the second viewing. Yeah, I mean, the the what happens to Robert Pattinson when he sees the light is actually more of a Christian idea because you get all these stories, or like, think of like raiders, right? The Nazis can't look at the Ark of the Covenant. They get fucking melted. And that's what happens to Robert Pattinson, right? But It's glorious but, and then he's punished. Yeah. yeah, right. But that doesn't happen to Prometheus. He steals that shit. He's like, this is mine. Giving it back. I'm going to give it back to humanity. And then Zeus punishes him. Um, so he's cherry picking mythologies and making a, a pie. Yeah, he's kind of baking up something new here. I think to sort of combine two of your points, Pepe, I think maybe because we're seeing this whole story through his eyes, maybe he sees himself as a Greek hero. You know, he is imagining that he's climbing this tower to get to this light for the betterment of mankind. When in reality, it's just him explaining away his own guilt, his own his own greed. Yeah, I think um, I think as the movie or I think one of the sort of at least my sort of evolution in watching the movie is that you do eventually, or I start eventually asking myself, like, who is the villain of this movie? Is it really Willem Dafoe? Um, I read something recently that said that, like, the difference between mytholo 
mythology and scripture is that in mythology, the victim is blamed, whereas in scripture, they're not. And in this, if you see, it is definitely mythological in that way if you think that Robert Pattinson is the hero of this movie. But if you don't, then it's sort of like, oh, well, okay, like, who is this guy? What are we supposed to be feeling towards him? What is the light? What just happened to him? Why is he being punished, you know? So many different ways to read this one. And I think that the viewer probably brings as much to the table and probably purposefully on the director's part uh, as is given to them when they arrive. Um, so I'll quickly go through some technical stuff because I think it merits it, but um, we are going a little long, which is fine, but I'll, I'll make this brief. Um, so, I mean, I won't point to any specific sequence, but I did like when they started drinking how the madness kind of took over. And I, I think at one point they start drinking kerosene even, so it just gets like yeah. way out of control. Um, yeah, and then of course I mentioned this before, but I'll briefly mention it again. Um, when uh, older Tom is cursing, uh, and I can't remember the name he went by, the the false name or whatever. That was just uh, such a great. I mean, if if there was going to be a best actor or best supporting actor clip, that certainly could have been it. But I don't think they would have been able to play the full two minutes. But that was just glorious. Um, as far as score and diegetic, non-diegetic sounds, they didn't really mix them up too much, but the score and the sound design in this was a crucial, important part of the movie. I think you'll all agree there. Um, just that that sound just hammering home the whole time. The uh, the the warning, uh, I don't know, it's not really a whistle. What is it? A, just a lighthouse horn, I guess. Oh, a horn. Yeah, uh, that, that was definitely a, a character in itself. A lot of foghorn, but very little leghorn in this one. <laughs> I actually <laughs> go easy on the leghorn, eh? Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was very interesting that it starts at the beginning of the film. We're hearing it constantly, and then we basically don't hear it again until the end. It's it sort of like disappears. I actually, it, it, when it first started, thought maybe they would be bold enough to just have that noise go for the entire length of the film, and I was like, wow, that is a bold choice. But then they didn't. Well, that's weird. I, that. My perception was I kept hearing it intermittently throughout but maybe i maybe i'm mistaken um uh, yeah and it didn't come up a lot it was just used kind of as a sound piece like in a, any horror film would have you know a loud horn noise um but it was specifically that foghorn but it doesn't come up very often it's, it's strange yeah in i kind of sorry go ahead, finish your thought uh, i was just gonna say in that sense it kind of did play with the the diegetic and uh sound uh, in that it was in world, but it had to do kind of with the sound design and score and the setting and the tone of the film. I thought it, I sort of ended up thinking that it had to do with um, how uh, the younger Tom, Robert Pattinson, was sort of telling the story, right? Because there would be when you, when the when the foghorn sound was prominent, it was when we would we would see him being like oppressed by it, right? But there are lots of other things in the story that kind of come and go, like Willem Dafoe's leg seems to be way limpier at some points than at others. And I kind of, I, I started thinking that, well, this is, this is how Robert Pattinson is telling the story. There are important things that he's telling us, and so he's not telling us about this annoying fucking foghorn all the time. He wants to tell us other sure, things. Sure, sure. Yeah. 
So you're just sure. supposed to, he suggested, maybe that, and then it worked on me because I thought it, that it was still going. That oppressive, oppressive is such the right word for that. And it also was interesting that when he pointed out those inconsistencies to older Tom, it was just completely lost on him. It's like, what? What are you talking about? Um, so uh, let's see, what else do we have here? Um, yeah, setting and sets, obviously very formal, and I think were used very well. Uh, that also feeds into uh, the lighting was fantastic. Uh, lots of what we call cookies, where you cut out shapes and imply that the light is going through something. Like Probably in this case, they did shine it through grates and stuff like that. But they played with that so much, it was absolutely beautiful, the light patterns they used and the lighting. Uh, cinematography was fantastic and interesting to me, uh, just how it was shot. And I, that was uh, the director suggested it be shot how it was shot. Um, whoever the cinematographer was definitely delivered. Um, there were there so. were there were some scenes in that movie where I think there were two or three where Robert Pattinson would stand up, and he would be casting this like huge shadow behind him. And every yes. time I saw that, I would just be like, ah, this is so scary. His shadow is so big. I don't know why it was scary to me, but man, it was scary. It's that flashlight up thing and then creating the shadow behind him. Yeah, it was beautifully, beautifully handled uh, from a technical perspective and really helped create that tone that he was going for. Sort of nightmarish, uh, oppressive, yeah, scary tone. Um, so why don't we go around and give what we think are our final grades and final thoughts for this. Um, Jim, wh where do you land on a grade from A to F? Um, as a grade, I would give it a, a, a solid B. Um, it pulled me in. It was atmospheric. Um, the foghorn sounding, um, I'm not used to foghorn. Um, and that was just dreadful. I just imagined being there and having to deal with that. And there was certain points, you know, where uh, uh, Pattinson's character had to deal with it on a, it's hurting my head, you know, and he had to put like, you know, makeshift earplugs in. But um, just to get back to the general um, view of the film, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I liked the dialogue between the two. Um, I've seen their, you know, some of the uh, homosexual attention as they are the only human ports in the storm. Uh, all they have is each other um, against this madness that was surrounding them. So I thought that part was really interesting and, and brave that they put that in there. Um, and uh, I wanted to see what would happen at the end, even though I pretty much knew what would happen in that respect. Um, the only markdown was cruelty to animals. I like seagulls. So even though it was fake, it was still even though it fun. was fake, it looked very real to me. It did. I didn't even know they were CGI. I felt terrible for that poor bird. <laughs> it just wouldn't let up. You really let loose there. Um, as for me, I'm going to give it a solid a, um, it was oppressive and a slog, and it man, he really captured the. Uh, I have been in that kind of apprentice situation uh, for certain jobs, and oh my god, it took me back to that like in an instant, where the where the where the uh, mentor is um, 
can be kind of come across as like harsh, you know, and you're just like looking, walking on eggshells, trying not to mess up around them. So he captured that really well. There was so much in there. Um, I just have to hand it to him, even though it's a tough watch uh, in some aspects, it was very rewarding. And I have to hand it to him that he's an excellent filmmaker. I cannot wait to see what he does next. Uh, I'll hand it over to you, Kat. What do you think? Do we, uh, do we get a letter grade from Jim? Sorry, recording. He gave a B. All right, sorry. So we got a B and then an A from myself. And uh, I think Kat. I'm a yeah. I think I'm gonna go with a B as well. I do feel like I have to rewatch this movie. Um, there's a lot to it, and maybe if I rewatched it, I would have a better grade for it and give it an A. But I think I just have to digest it more and think about it um, to really see how intricate and complex I think I I think it it could be or it is. Um, so obviously, like I said, objectively, it's a good movie. The cinematography is fantastic. The acting was phenomenal. Um, those are for sure, like obvious, uh, things that we, anyone I think who watches it can see. It's definitely not a movie that I think everyone's going to enjoy. And I think that's kind of the part where I'm like, I'm not sure if this is going to speak to everyone who watches it. Um, and so, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to rewatch it, uh, but for right now, I'm going to give it a B. But are you going to rewatch it? It, it? I'll say this. It's it's a Pinot Noir. It's very complex, and that's not for everyone. Um, so I think you're yeah. accurate there. That's that's a yeah. fair that's a fair uh, assessment. And what about you, Devin? Where where'd you land on this? Yeah, I think I'm I'm landing right in the B camp too. Um, I think I mean if we're doing plus minuses, I think B plus. Um, I think it's mm-hmm. definitely on the the uh, higher tilt there. I just think that. Um, yeah, given given its sort of unsettling nature, while that was compelling, I don't know if it entertained me. Again, it wasn't digestible. <laughs> you know, it takes a little while to get through, kind of like Kat said. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely was compelled by it and very interested by it, you know. Cool. And Pepe, James Pepe, who chose the film, um, where are you landing with your letter grade? Yeah, so I if we're doing if we're doing half half grades, I would give this an A minus, basically for the reason I said. I think it's I really like this movie, obviously, which is why I picked it. I think it's funny that you guys that it was a tough watch for you guys because over the course of the week after this was revealed, I watched this movie three times. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think uh, if we're only doing whole grades, I'd give it an A. I think it's great. For doing halves, I give it an A minus because, like I said, I don't think he kind of sticks to the landing with the allusions he was making to the mythology stuff. I would have really liked a more, I don't know, coherent sort of idea. But then again, on the other hand, it, it's it's thought provoking and not having a like one right answer to a thing makes that thing, you know rewatchable you can come back to it over and over again and find new things in it every time every time you watch it so yeah i say a or a minus for me okay um that puts us at about uh 3.5 um the the gpa calculator i'm using uh is being a little bit testy not letting me put in that last a minus so we're somewhere between a 3.33 and a 3.5 um, which I'll correct and I'll have to state next show what the exact GPA is. So if you want to put down a 3.5 for now, Devin, um, we can run with that and I'll figure out 
what I'm missing with this GPA calculator. It graduated with honors. Okay, cool. Well done, the lighthouse. So I think that the tomatometer uh, was probably pretty accurate in its assessment because between the audience score and of uh, seventy two and the ninety percent, you're you're right in there. So yeah. All right. Um, so. Um, Let's. Uh, how about we roll for the next episode now? Uh, yeah, James next episode. Pepe, you have the honors, and let me do a cue in yeah, here. Right. We'll have the drum roll, please, and go ahead and roll when you're ready. It's a one, folks. Number one. Oh, no. oh critical fail. <laughs> okay, number one is. Willow on Disney Plus. Willow streaming on Disney Plus will be our next uh, movie to discuss and watch this week. So um, we'll look forward to doing that next time. And um, I guess that's about it. Oh, no, wait. Who's that at the door? Just one more thing. Lieutenant Columbo is insisting on going over just one more thing. So... Is there something outside the realm of movies this week that uh, grab your attention? We'll try to make this pretty brief, but if there's something you want to mention, now's the time to do it. Let's start with you, Jim Scott. All right. So uh, it was actually two weeks ago, two weekends ago, I should say, but I attended a, uh, a convention. It was a virtual convention due to the times that we live in. It was called GaryCon. So um, obviously in our, in our very first episode, we said that we love role-playing and this convention was exactly that. Um, for those of you that are not um, Dungeons & Dragons nerds like myself, um, Gary Khan is a tribute to Gary Gygax. It was him and Dave Arneson that were the co you know, creators of Dungeons & Dragons in its first form. And Gary Khan is hosted by his son, Luke Gygax. Um, I had a great time. There was uh, very much interesting games. And I miss going to conventions. So going to convention, no matter what its form, was very exciting. And it's also a chance to try role-playing games other than Dungeons & Dragons. So, uh, yeah, it was a blast. It was a really good time. Year. And, yeah, good point on that. That leads into my uh, one more thing. Um, which has to do with the Quest 2, the uh, Oculus Quest 2 and virtual reality. Uh, my thing this week was uh, a program called Big Screen on there. I was able to reconnect with a friend that uh, I haven't gotten to see in a while, and we used to watch Star Trek together. We were able to jump on there and watch an episode of The Next Generation together and enjoyed uh, that time. Uh, and it's just a, one, of, one of those COVID things where it's like you have to find new pathways to socialize. And so that that's similar to me. Kat, did you have something you wanted to mention this week? Yeah, actually I actually have two things since I missed last week. Um, Fair enough. So I have two shout outs um, to things um, that I'm 
now ingesting, I guess, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, I'm reading this book called The Prophets. That's really great. If you like uh, James Baldwin, his type of writing, this is kind of on par. Um, and also another podcast that I've been listening to called Ear Hustle, which is about San Quentin, um, which is here in the Bay Area. So if you've ever wondered what it's like to live there as a prisoner, um, definitely check out that podcast. It'll make you laugh and cry. So. Wow. Okay. I'll definitely check that it's out. It's good, Thanks. right? It's nice. It's nice to live there, right? Yeah. 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 So great. Better than the lighthouse, maybe. Um, <laughs> yeah, Devin, Devin, maybe. Devin, yeah, maybe. Probably not. Uh, Devin, what, what's your thing? Yeah, so my, mine is actually somewhat film-related. It's just a little mini rant that I want to go on because it's something I've experienced lately is just my hatred of trailers. I absolutely despise film trailers and actually the lighthouse does a really good job because its trailers were so brief and and to the point and maintain the mystery of the film which i think is what all trailers should do regardless of the genre um and i think especially these days trailers have gotten out of fucking hand they're like six minute long trailers for films and it's like every big action scene is in the trailer every like everything is spoiled by it like it's it's ridiculous i make it a policy to if i watch any trailer for the thing at all it's only the announcement trailer. And if if it's like any other kind of trailer, I'll watch like the first 30 seconds. And like, as long as I get the gist, that's all I want. I don't, I, I like to be surprised. I don't want the whole film just completely laid before me. Fair enough. I'll add this, that I, it's almost like because trailers get so much views, I wonder if it's like generating revenue through social oh, media sure. for the, yeah. for the, uh, the studios. Yeah, and then these days, the, the other annoying thing is just these days, there's a new, like the way they make trailers is different. They always, every trailer has a little mini two second trailer before the real trailer, which is literally just designed so that people who are watching on social media have time to unmute it. They, they literally do that. The Godzilla one, Godzilla vs. Kong had a countdown, a literal countdown to the beginning of the trailer. So you had time to unmute it. That's so stupid. Weird. It's just dumb. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And James and uh, James Pepe, uh, do you have something you want to share this week? Yeah. Yeah. So so last week I plugged N Niftaline, if you guys remember, and this yes. week I got um, I got a super whoops, super nice edition of one of my favorite book series, Gene Wolfe's uh, Book of the New Sun, and this is, is also beautiful. yeah, it's That's in a beautiful the box. Yeah, this is actually the um, the less expensive version. There was a four-volume version <laughs> that was about $1,000, I think. Whoa. And it was signed. I mean, it was there was only like 600, 600 copies of it or something. This one was a mere $175. Um, but man, that speaks, it's nice. That speaks to the quality of the series if they're willing to even put something out there that's that expensive. Yeah. I think it's like, okay, well, they obviously think people are actually going to buy a fork over the grand for that uh maybe not that many people but enough to where it must be pretty damn good so yeah yeah i mean it's it's a well i mean wolf it's it's illustrated as well there's some illustrations and stuff but anyway wolf is a wolf. is a relatively well-known author he died recently which was actually great for them because now you know he he died pretty soon after that first yeah right now right he I mean, made it no, to I mean, the end of the, of the writing that he set out to accomplish. Well, like, I just, damn. I just think it's great that some people who wanted to get his signature before he died were able to get it. So, uh, oh, because and now, because enough. I don't have any, any of his books that are signed, and it's they're only going to get more expensive. So, so yeah, Fair go enough. pick up, uh, go pick up book of the new sun from Folio. This is a Folio Society. Okay. Cool. Well, thanks everyone. Um, we'll 
quickly go around if you want to plug anything or yourself or social media or just say goodbye we'll quickly do that and we'll wrap it up jim scott all right um so i'm jim scott you can't me find me on the internet of yet but social media is forthcoming but i appreciate you folks listening to this podcast and i definitely would appreciate any any comments that you guys care to leave but until next time take care cat it's been real catch me on uh instagram at cat ramirez with two z's uh see you all next time okay devin um devin schwartz i'm at devin schwartz one on twitter and game over man game over <laughs> game over man and uh pepe yeah i'm james um don't use social media it's bad and uh eating grass with no teeth is powerful hard <laughs> you just pluck it and shove it in or something like that you just, or you, you swallow, just rip it. It up and swallow it yeah. rip it up and swallow it thank you for correcting me there Okay, and I've been uh, Ben Mitchell, your host. Um, if you would go ahead and, and you like what we're doing, leave us a five-star uh, review on any anywhere you get this podcast. That would really help us out. Uh, anything less than that, if you could go ahead and email me directly and let me know. It's ben at redhenmedia.com, and you can also find us um, on Facebook uh, at redhenmedia1, uh, and that also has other social media handles as well. And now that you've looked at ours, we hope very soon to look at yours. Thank you for looking, lookers. Remember to watch next week's movie, Willow, now streaming on Disney+. Plus. This has been I'll Look at Yours If You Look at Mine. Until next time, keep on looking. Red Pen!